Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we welcome Chuck Collins, who's the author of The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions, which is new from Polity Press. Chuck, welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, so uh, typically we begin by asking people to tell us a little bit about who they are and how they came to this particular project. And that is a question that I think is especially relevant for you and this book, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I'm currently the director of the program on inequality at the Institute for Policy Studies. And I've been probably for 30 plus years looking at these issues of growing income and wealth inequality. I actually come from a, a kind of privileged advantage background. I grew up uh, in the 1%. My great-grandfather was the meatpacker, Oscar Meyer. But fairly early on in my 20s, I got kind of educated as to how, how inequality was affecting people. Uh, I worked with low-income tenants uh, trying to buy their mobile home parks around New Hampshire and other places. And uh, it gave me an intimate front row seat to both how wealth procreates, if you will, wealth creates more wealth, and how accumulating disadvantage also works. And so I was primed to kind of be curious about issues of inequality. And and this book really comes out of my understanding that the very wealthy uh, and I'm talking about people with like 30 million or more, uh, have a lot of tools at their disposal to hide wealth, minimize their taxes, and essentially another set of rules uh, when it comes to managing and maintaining their wealth. And, you know, I think we're having a big conversation nationally about inequality and taxes, and it's going to be awfully hard to tax the wealthy if so much wealth is hiding. So that, that's how I got into the topic. So why don't, why don't we start there? How much wealth are we talking about here is, is what you call hidden wealth? Well, uh, it's, it's hard to know exactly because it's hidden, but <laughs> some very smart people have done some estimates on sort of what you could call the tax gap, you know, uh, uh, and also because of certain kinds of leaks, uh, you know, like the Panama Papers and the sort of window periodically opens up and you can kind of get a little picture of the scale of the wealth hiding. Uh, Berkeley economist Gabriel Zuckman estimates it's about 8% of the world's wealth. And a number of other folks, the estimate ranges now, for, I think, from about $24 trillion to about $36 trillion in hidden wealth uh, gl- at the global level. And so when you, so when you talk about hidden wealth, what, what, what actually are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, how wealth has been put into sort of ownership structures that sort of obfuscate, hide, disconnect it from its owners for tax and accountability purposes. So, uh, and 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 just to set it up to say, you know, there's a there's a whole industry of people, uh, what I would call the wealth defense industry or the wealth hiding industry, 
that help wealthy people and they create trusts. Uh, they use anonymous shell companies. They use offshore bank accounts and often some combination of all those things to kind of add a bunch of different layers that just make it more impenetrable and harder for the rest of us to know who's got the money and where it is. So so you estimate there're somewhere in the neighborhood of 90,000 of these folks you describe as wealth defense professionals, right? People whose job it is to 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 look for methods of of hiding this wealth uh from taxation among other things. Why don't we talk a little bit about about who those people are and how it is that they go about doing it. So so start start wherever you'd like. Sort of what who are these people and and what are their jobs and what kind of positions do they occupy and then maybe we'll talk about the specific structures they use to to secrete wealth away. Yeah. Well, the you know the overarching uh this wealth defense industry often includes tax attorneys, accountants, uh wealth managers, people who work at family offices and we We'll come back and talk about family offices, but there these are you know white collar professionals uh, with sort of advanced training, uh, often trust attorneys who specialize in trust and estate law, and uh, they you know when you mention ninety thousand, those are the people who work on what I call the individual wealth hiding basis. There's a whole other cast of characters. Uh, who work with corporations, global transnational corporations, to sort of minimize their taxes using some of the same tools, but a few others uh, that they use. Uh, but the, I'm really talking about who gets up every morning uh, and goes to work, and their primary role is helping this richest one-tenth of one percent uh, avoid taxes and accountability. Um, so they're they're professionals, they're well-paid, and I would argue they've become kind of a class, an interest group un, unto themselves, uh, that they are not the super wealthy that they're helping, but they sort of identify and their careers are built around helping rich people accumulate money and pass it on and maintain it generation to generation. And for, for the most part, are they engaged in legal or illegal activity? Well, they will tell you that they everything they do is legal and all they're doing is obeying the law um, but what i want people to understand is that these folks are not uh just sort of benign players they're actively engaged in writing the laws manipulating uh tax and 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 trust policies uh creating new entities and tax shelters and lobbying vociferously to keep them from being regulated and eliminated. So they're not just sort of standing there saying, oh, we're just obeying the law. We're just, you know, they're, they're creating the rules and they're, and they're laying, layering them with complexity. These folks thrive on complexity and making the tax system and the trade system harder and harder for people to regular people to understand so that their activities can sort of fly below the radar. And that, that, that complexity, I mean, it's if you think about sort of tax enforcement in the United States, um, it becomes its own kind of virtue, right? Because if you create a sufficiently complicated tax structure with an IRS that has been consistently underfunded for many, many years now, 
it's literally impossible for those government agencies to do the work of untangling that ownership because of the very complexity, right? No, absolutely. I mean, the the <clears throat> as you say, the 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 failure, the the inability of the IRS to enforce is both a reflection of the complexity. People talk about complexity of the tax code, but Stephen, let's be clear: for most of us, the tax code is pretty clear. You you have income. You usually get the taxes taken out of your paycheck even before you see it. Uh, you file your return. Maybe you get a refund. Maybe you owe more. Uh, the tax rate system is pretty clear. You just look it up on the table. Most of the pile of paper, the complexity of the tax code is really in the machinations of this top 1% and really top one-tenth of 1% of wealth managers. They're the ones that are creating complicated uh, you know, business uh, holding companies and interactions between grantor-retained annuity trusts and you know, uh, trust officers, you know, create in other countries. And, you know, that's where the complexity comes in. And unfortunately, the IRS has been decimated in its capacity to keep up with all, all the shenanigans and keep up with the wealthy. In fact, they spend more resources enforcing uh, the earned income credit and, and looking for fraud among people who are really in the bottom 30% of income earners than they do devoting to chasing down these complicated trusts, partly because it requires a huge expertise to be able to police that. So why don't, why don't we get in, into the weeds a little bit and, and talk a little bit about, about some of the, the, the vehicles. Can you tell folks a little bit what an asset protection trust is and the role that it plays in, in this kind of activity? Yeah. Now, I, I should say I'm not really an expert on trust law, but, but part, of, part of writing this book, what was fun, was going to some of these experts and having them hold my hand and try to explain some of these things. And the thing that's fascinating about trusts is, first of all, most people don't know what they are. You may have heard of like a special needs trust. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that the sort of typical trust and the justification for a trust is, okay, you have a family member with a disability, a child. Uh, you anticipate that that child will outlive you. So you create a trust and, uh, you, you are the, you create the trust, um, by, by putting the money into it and you have a trustee and you have a beneficiary. Uh, so there's sort of three parts of the trust. Um, the grantor, the person who creates it, the, the trustee and the beneficiary An asset protection trust sort of uses that same thing. I'm going to put my money outside the reach of creditors, um, outside the reach of disgruntled co-workers, maybe ex-spouses. Uh, I might put my asset protection trust in the Cook Islands or some offshore jurisdiction where they have special rules uh, where I can be the grantor, I can be the beneficiary. Oh, and Stephen, you're my trustee, but if you do anything that I don't want, I'll fire you and get a new trustee. So wait a second here. Who owns this trust? Who who owns this wealth? Uh, it's in limbo. From a legal point of view, the the assets in that trust are in a kind of purgatory. Uh, from tax purposes, I can just say, "Well, I don't own it." Or from uh, if you're suing me because I accidentally set your house on fire, or I intentionally set it on fire, uh, I don't own that money. It's in a trust. 
And so you can't come after it. And in fact, if it's in the Cook Islands, you'll have to go to the Cook Islands if you want to sort of file a claim. They make it incredibly hard. Uh, so that's just an example. It's a way, uh, you know, if you're a doctor and you're of trying to avoid malpractice suits, you put a bunch of your assets into an asset protection trust. That 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 is a way to protect yourself in a litigious society. But they get used for all kinds of other ways of just avoiding simple accountability. You know, if I back into your car, I'm going to owe you money. But if I back into your car and everything I own is in an asset protection trust, you're never going to get a nickel out of me. And, and so that's why it's not just avoiding taxes, it's avoiding responsibility and accountability. And that the, the ability to do that is aided and abetted by uh, tax havens, some of which are outside the boundaries of the United States, some are within the boundaries of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about, about the role that that plays in this? Yeah, I mean, if, and, and, and to be clear, it's you and I, it would, we we might be able to figure out how to set one of these up on our own, but chances <laughs> are we would need help. We would need professional help. We'd have to pay somebody because think about it. You to to work cross borders, uh, and and tax havens are uh, sixty now plus jurisdictions around the world where these are countries that have kind of sold off a bit of their sovereignty. They've give they've allowed their laws to be changed to benefit this kind of global wealth hiding industry. So if you're the Cook's Islands or the Cayman Islands or the Isle of uh, you know Guernsey off the UK coast or Panama or Nevis or all these little jurisdictions that, that and that actually that's an important point. These are smaller countries where their rules have been captured by a, a, an industry. Uh, you know, so, you know, in the British Virgin Islands, there's a very small but powerful little trust making industry. And they just go to the legislature and say, uh, could you change this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule, which makes us an advantageous place to hide and park money. Um, and so that's the problem that and, and that all around the world, there are these tax havens that, uh, that you know, play play kind of an important part of this game. Banks in some of these tax havens don't have reporting requirements. Corporations in these jurisdictions don't have to disclose who the real owners are. Those are some of the benefits. Uh, I'll I'll just foreshadow and say the United States, however, has become, uh, you know, the new global tax haven. Uh, We're now the destination for global kleptocratic capital from around the world because our laws have not kept up, and we have a bunch of states well, that are also renegades. Um, so we, the United, so it's not like all the money's parked on some Caribbean island, you know, sitting, drinking a fruity little cocktail or whatever. The money, a lot of it, is here in the United States, booked through these these various trusts and ownership entities. And Delaware is a big player in this, correct? Yeah, Delaware is kind of like the weak link in the system because. Uh, historically, Delaware has been a very pro-corporate state. They have limited liability company laws that, uh, you know, it's e- it's harder to get a library card than it is to create an anonymous LLC in Delaware. Because to get a library card, Stephen, you have to prove who you are as a real human being and where you live. And you don't need to prove that to create a Delaware LLC. And so if you are a sex trafficker or a global 
a dictator trying to hide money that you stole from your own people, uh, or you're a lawyer for Donald Trump, you love Delaware LLCs because you don't have to disclose anything. So I'm uh, uh, living in New Hampshire now, but a former New Yorker and was was there when we started to see these these giant, ugly, enormous, monolithic uh, uh, apartment buildings going up uh, around Central Park, among other places with with uh, uh, purchase prices of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and sort of it's like wait a minute who who are these people and and what's going on there those aren't necessarily actually apartments that are designed for people to live in necessarily are they no you know i i i think we should think of them like global wealth storage units you know when you drive by uh, the exurban area and you see these storage facilities where people store all their stuff. Uh, th- th- this is a place where wealthy people from around the world are parking their assets, often owned by shell companies. Um, so again, if you're a Russian oligarch and you want to get your money out of Russia um, and you want it to be somewhere where it will hold its value, uh, U.S. real estate is very attractive. Uh, you can park it there anonymously, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, you basically have these these the, in Manhattan, but you have we see it now in Boston, Miami, uh, a lot of the West Coast cities. Any city that sort of has a upscale housing market is seeing an increase in anonymously owned real estate holdings, and 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 in some cases, people are living in these units, but for the most part, they're just uh, holding their they're just a way to park assets so they hold their value, and that their home country can't come and take them. So in those instances, the hyperinflated uh, prices of those is actually a feature, not a bug, right? The more inflated the prices, the more money you can store there. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and 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 this has this has a you know a downside. Obviously, I mean, it has some upside for people who are in the building trades, and maybe if you're uh, you know providing service rich lifestyle, which some of these places advertise. But uh, it also drives up the cost of land. Uh, it obviously wastes a huge amount of resources. It diverts construction and resources to you know building these monolithic buildings that no one's going to live in. So it has a downside. For, it disrupts the local housing market and the affordable housing market in a lot of larger cities. And art winds up working in a similar kind of way, yes? Well, yeah. If you think about any asset that holds value is attractive – if your goal is to get your money out of, you know, I'm going to take my money that I stole from the people of Angola, siphon it through a bunch of shell corporations in Europe, and then where am I going to park it so my billions will hold their value? Uh, art, jewelry, land, other forms of real estate, other forms of rep- property representation, in addition to just being in, you know, bonds and the stock market. Uh, but it, you know, if you're a billionaire, you're looking to diversify your holdings and spread them over lots of different asset classes, and that's why art has become, at the global level, another wealth storage value entity. So you made reference earlier to to the family office. Can you talk a little bit about about what that is and and the role that that they play in this? Yeah, I mean, a family office is a way in which families organize really with two overarching goals, uh, 
preserve the existing wealth they have and pass it on to children. Uh, and it, it, there's nothing sort of inherently sinister about the idea of a family office, except inherent to their purpose is sort of dynasty building. Um, and, you know, the earliest family offices were in the United States were, you know, John D. Rockefeller, where, you know, instead of hiring out, you know, for attorneys and accountants and everything, he sort of said, well, why don't I just bring this all in-house and have these people directly report to me as opposed to some bank? And so he essentially created his own internal management. And, you know, I, I, I'm from Boston. Boston was sort of an early center of family offices. There were several hundred in the early 80s, all serving sort of old wealth New England families. Um, and they, you know, handle, they're sort of the financial butlers. They, they handle, they can handle a lot, you know, everything from, uh, uh, you know, charitable foundations, uh, trust and estate planning. They can do education programs for the next generation. They can do way more than that. They can like provide services and financial bookkeeping and bill pay services. And, um, but really central to their mission is protecting the assets and figuring out how to pass as much on to the next generation as possible. And so tax avoidance and tax dodging is central to their purpose. And just the number of family offices has exploded as as the concentration of wealth globally has grown. We've gone from maybe 1,000 family offices in the 80s to more than 10,000 globally with a thousand in London alone. So now every super wealthy person wants to have their own family office. And, and I mean, you encountered this firsthand, right? You ran across some of these people when you were confronting what to do with your own inheritance, and they were utterly mortified by the fact that you were considering giving it away. What, what was that experience like? Well, you know, as a young Midwesterner, I, I wasn't really from a gilded family, but, you know, I was living in Boston and I had this kind of whack, wacky idea that, you know, I, I think I want to give away these assets. I don't, I don't think I want to hold on to them. I, I don't really like this idea of sort of inherited wealth. I want to kind of make my own way, which is completely foolish notion at that in reality. <laughs> you know, I'm, I have so much advantage hardwired. I could give away all my money and I'd still be you know, white, male, and middle class in America, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I got a, a window into this world. I made some friends. I met I met a, a woman who was kind of like a the scion of a old New England family. She sort of took me under her wing, tried to talk me out of, you know, doing silly things like giving away my wealth and assets. And she invited me to her family office. And I remember at the time going, what's a family office? And she's like, well, this is where we you know, it was up on this skyscraper on State Street overlooking Boston Harbor. Uh, you know, I'm like, what happens here? Oh, well, we manage the family, uh, you know, wealth here, you know. Oh, do, do people know about this? Uh, no, we don't hide it, but uh, we don't advertise it. You know, there's several hundred of these family offices. And it just gave me this window into like, huh, you know, there's a whole lot of people working to help the super rich stay super rich, you know? Uh, and there's this idea, Stephen, that, you know, in a democratic, healthy society that has a working tax system, wealth doesn't accelerate over generations. <laughs> you know, you have somebody who, you know, maybe in the case of these old New England fortunes, you know, had 
had a lot of logging camps in northern New England and had a big timber wealth. But the idea is like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. The first generation of wealthier wealth create the wealth, and then uh, the next generation is spending the wealth. And by the third or fourth generation, people have to go back to get a job. You know, they're not just like sitting there living off of inherited wealth. And part of that is they have children and the wealth disperses and they pay their taxes and maybe they even share some through charity. That is the, I would say, the natural order of wealth in a healthy democratic society where the rich are also paying taxes. Now we're seeing wealth accumulate, accelerate. You know, the Walt, Sam Walton in 1983 had, you know, $2 billion. Now the Waltons have $250 billion. Well, how is that possible? Well, this industry is helping arrest that natural process of wealth dispersal and helping to preserve, protect, and expand wealth over generations. And that's, that's dynasty building. And, uh, you know, that's like bringing feudalism to America. Because if you just play that out 20 years, you know, we're going to be living in a society where the sons and daughters of today's billionaires will be dominating our politics and economy and philanthropy. Their, their, their wealth, even their philanthropic wealth, will become like a dynastic form of power and influence. So if you care about self-governing democracy and fair taxes, this is a problem. Uh, so that feels like a perfect segue. What do we do about it? Well, you know, I've, I've kind of spelled it out, and sometimes I think maybe I overcomplicate the story. The reality is there's a couple of simple fixes. One, you require corporations to disclose their beneficial owners. Two, you outlaw trusts that simply have no real meaningful purpose other than tax avoidance. You outlaw tax loopholes. Three, you enforce it. You know, you put the resources into making sure that the rich are complying. Uh, and then four, you sort of glo- enter into kind of a global set of treaties where you say, you want to do business with the United States, you need to have meet these transparency requirements. Uh, and the first thing is we go across over to our friends in the United Kingdom, who are a little further ahead of us now in cleaning up their house and saying, let's together create a new global system of transparency and where countries have country by country reporting, where uh, corporations uh, have to disclose what they pay in each country. Uh, And then all these tiny little secrecy jurisdictions, it's not that hard to say to Belize, hey, Belize, I know you're like the the debt grifter's paradise here, but do you want tourists from the United States? Do you want to be part of our global trade regime? Do you want, you know, foreign aid? Okay. Well, the, if you want those things, you, you're free to keep being a te- debtor's tax haven for the 1% of the people in Belize who benefit from that. But we want you to rejoin the, the wealth of nations and, uh, and help us close down this global wealth hiding apparatus. Um, now that sounds like a simple list, but, it, and it is a political lift. But Stephen, just the good news is at, at in December 2020, the U.S. Congress passed the Corporate Transparency Act signed by Donald Trump, requiring that corporations 
disclose their beneficial owners. Uh, it was part of the National Defense Af Authorization Act. It was widely supported by law enforcement and financial accountability groups, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it has some weak links. It doesn't include trusts and partnerships. So there's some loopholes that the wealth defense industry is going to obviously use to get around it. But it's a great first step. Uh, there's a whole, whole lot of talk right now and putting a lot more money into enforcement, rebuilding the uh, capacity of the IRS to, to monitor rich taxpayers. Um, so I think we're on track uh, to, to, to move in the right, we're moving in the right direction. But it, it, I mean, I, I guess sort of I, I do think about, about the politics a lot, as you made reference to earlier. We've got already a political system that is disproportionately uh, controlled by and influenced by people of means, right? And there are now an enormous body of scholarship built over the last 20 years or so documenting that that's just not, you know, crazy lefty complaining. It's actually well documented that we've got a political system that is largely unresponsive to the needs of larger and larger shares of the population. So all of those people with an enormous stake in maintaining their influence and control surely are not going to go down without a fight. And what was it just just recently, the the uh, Republican, uh, uh, the members of Congress uh, put forward a proposal to further weaken uh, inheritance taxes. So, I mean, it, it sounds as if you are hopeful. Do you really think that there are means to to fight back against what is already entrenched influence? Well, you, you describe it perfectly. I mean, we, we have a political system that has been captured by the wealthy, by the, the wealthy and maybe a couple thousand global corporations. We we're up against this politically powerful wealth defense industry. I mean, these are people whose jobs depend on, you know, continued accumulation, uh, you know, and Upton Sinclair used to say it's it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So there's ninety thousand people who, uh, no, I should say, not all of them, but you know, there's a lot of people who are sort of like, "Hey, what's the problem here?" Um, the good news, I mean, the re the reason I wrote this book is because I just want to have these conversations that you and I are having, so that the wider public understands that not only do we need to increase taxes on the wealthy, which a large majority of people now support, but that it's going to be really hard to do it if we don't uh, plug up these holes and deal with the hidden wealth problem. And I believe that these, these proposals that we're talking about would be widely supported if people understood them. So there is an educational, really important educational piece of this work, but then you start to have people win and lose elections based on who are they going to stand with? Are you going to stand with the, the, the one-tenth of 1% and the wealth hoarding sector and these laws that are going to just protect them? Or are you going to um, you know, support the vast majority of people who think that we should make a simpler, more transparent tax system? So I think it will take some education and a social movement but I take heart, for instance, Joe Biden, here, our current president, he is from Delaware, right? He represented Delaware for 36 years in the U.S. Senate. He, he finally came around in support of this 
National Transparency Bill, along with the Attorney General from Delaware. They were just embarrassed, you know? When when the premier sort of child pornography website, Backpages or whatever, I forget what it's called, you know, is a Delaware LLC and, and 90% of, of child sex abuse abductions are run through these Delaware companies, you know, it starts to get a little embarrassing that you are the the brothel for global capital, right? Uh, so even Delaware is starting to be rethink aspects of their secrecy. Um, so I think that, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, Senator Warren's wealth tax bill has some really powerful provisions in it for enforcement. Uh, Senator Sanders and others have introduced uh, reforms to the inheritance tax. You, you mentioned the estate tax that would outlaw certain kinds of trusts. That is radical stuff and I think really meaningful in this political moment. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Chuck Collins, who has been telling us about his new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions, out from Polity Press. Chuck, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen.